You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Acts chapter 13 in your Bibles. After my third year of Bible college, the summer after my third year graduation was a very busy summer. I came back to Sandpoint immediately after leaving college and began working feverishly to save up enough money in order to get married. The end of that summer in August, I was to get married, and at the beginning of that summer, I was asked to speak at two different teen Bible camps. And they were to be one week apart. So I spoke for a week at one teen camp, then I had a week off, and then I spoke for a week at a, the second teen camp, which is a different camp, different location altogether. Then I had a week off, and then we were, I was to get married. The second of those camps was really kind of an interesting camp. It was run by a lady that I had never met before. She was the director, and it turned out that she used in her chapel times the week before. During my week off, I was at the camp hanging around watching how things were going. And during that week, she uses guided visualization, which is a, a new age technique where you kind of go to your happy place and you envision different things. And uh, that was her chapel technique. And she believed that God could be a woman or was a woman if you wanted her to be or him to be or whatever. It really didn't matter what you believed. As long as you believed in God, you could believe that he or she was a male or female gender. It really didn't matter. She was the director, and I was the speaker. That equaled some tension. That was an interesting week, but that's a story for a whole other occasion. The first camp that I spoke at was run not by her, but by a friend of mine that I had gone to school with. And it was way out in the boonies up near Calgary. It was very rustic. It makes the campground that we use for our church camp out look like the Hilton by comparison. It was, it was out there. They had a generator that supplied the electricity that they shut off every night. At, when it lights out, lights out, and you heard the generator go off, and that was lights out. And I spoke for that week, and, and uh, there was about 35 or 40 teens that were in attendance there at that camp. And I started the week with a real straightforward gospel presentation. Very first night, I shared my testimony, and then I shared the gospel. I explained who Christ was. I talked about his death, I talked about our sin, I talked about the judgment that was to come, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, I presented him as Savior, and I begged these kids to place their faith in Christ for salvation. And I even, I even did an altar call, beginning of the week, and nobody came forward. Not a one. Well, for the rest of the week I presented Christ, and almost every chapel session I presented the gospel in some way, and at the end of the week, I, I presented it straight out again, just as clear as I could make it. And I even, I even did an altar call. Nobody came forward. And that Friday night, they had a fireside. And they did some singing, had a big bonfire, and the kids all sat around it and shared what God had done in their lives. It was opened up for them to share testimonies. And so I was standing there off to the side listening to this whole thing. And, and the kids would stand up and they would share how great their counselor was how great the food was, how great their friends were, how great this fireside was. The one thing I did not hear was how God had reached down and touched their lives that week through the preaching of His Word. 
The one thing I did not hear was anybody share any glowing, weeping, sobbing testimonies about how great a particular message was and how it had impacted their lives and changed them for Christ and now they had turned their lives around to the Lord and none of that. Now, I think there was one or maybe two kids who came to Christ that whole week and it wasn't me who had the privilege of doing that. It was one of the other counselors in the cabin uh, at night after the chapel services. And I was standing there next to the fireside and I was waiting for this. I was expecting this. And I was crushed. I mean, how can you preach the gospel to 40 inner city teens and not have them come forward in droves to respond to the message of the gospel? How can that possibly be? That's what I expected. That's what I wanted. These guys to talk about how Christ had changed their lives and how the messages had changed their lives and how they had trusted Christ. And that never happened. I spent the next several days before the next camp just going over it in my mind. Lord, is there some element of the gospel that I left out? Something that I should have communicated but didn't communicate. I didn't want to repeat the same thing the next week at the next camp, and so I was racking my brains. Was there some sin in my life that kept me from being a vessel that the Lord would use? Was there something that I said that I shouldn't have? Did I not make it clear enough And to answer those questions, I don't know. I don't know what the problem was, if there was a problem. I presented myself to the Lord. I said, Lord, at the beginning of that week, I said, Lord, I'm here to be used by you in whatever way you see fit. And see, that's the key. In whatever way you see fit. It was not how I wanted to be used that the Lord was so much concerned about. It was how he wanted to use me that I was so, that he was concerned about. That summer haunted me for years. Not because I got married, but because I had, <laughs> of that week's response at the church, at the camp that summer. Uh, it plagued me, and I worried about that and wondered about that. What was wrong? What did I do wrong? What went wrong that week that kids did not come forward in mass and respond to the gospel? That I didn't get the response that I was expecting and praying for? Until I learned a couple of important principles and I'm going to share these with you by way of illustration. The first thing that I learned, have learned since then, is that it's God who gives the increase. The Scripture says a man, one man sows and another man waters, and it's God who gives the increase. The fruit production department is not my department. You and I are in the sowing and watering business. We're not in the fruit producing business. The Lord decided to use me in a way that was different the way I wanted or expected to be used. But I had to trust the Lord that I was going to do what He asked me to do and be faithful to do what He asked me to do and that He would provide the increase. The Lord may have sent me there that week to sow. The Lord may have sent me that week there that week to water what somebody else had previously sown. But the one thing the Lord did not send me there that week to do was to produce or manifest fruit. That's what I cannot do. I can preach. I can teach. I can study. I can present the Gospel. I can share His Word. But I cannot create ex nihilo out of nothing fruit on people's lives. I can't do that. And all of the preaching and all of the teaching and all of the studying, I trust the Lord it was not in vain. Because just because you and I don't see any immediate fruit doesn't mean there wasn't any, nor does it mean that there won't ever be any. Because I sow you water, but it's the Lord who gives the increase. The second principle that I have come to understand is that the preaching of the Word and the sharing of the Gospel 
always produces a response. Now you say, Jim, you just got done telling us that it did not produce a response that week. No, that's not what I just got done telling you. What I just got done telling you was it did not produce the response I was expecting that week. But the preaching of the Lord always produces a response. Isn't that what Isaiah 55 verse 11 says? So will my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will accomplish what? What the speaker purposes for it? No, what I want it to accomplish. It will not return to me void, having not accomplished what I have purposed, the Lord promises. It always produces a response. It may produce apathy, so that the hearer just doesn't care. It may produce belief, so that the person who hears the gospel wants to jump up and run forward to accept Christ and to trust Him as Savior. It may produce unbelief, where they will mock and jeer and sneer at you. Or it may produce persecution and opposition. It may produce hatred for the preacher. It may produce hatred for the person who bears the message. Friends, it will always produce something. I think it was D.L. Moody who said that the preaching of the gospel will always serve to either harden the heart or to soften the heart. But it will always do one of those two things. Those who hear the presentation of the gospel and reject it and turn from it, the gospel message serves to harden their hearts. Or the gospel message will soften the heart and it will draw them closer and closer to the Savior every time it's heard. But it will always, always produce a response. Maybe not the response you want. Maybe not the response you're praying for. Maybe not the response you're expecting. But it will always produce a response. It's God who gives the increase and the preaching of His Word always produces a response. Now that's confidence, isn't it? Doesn't that give you a certain degree of confidence? That you can share Christ with your neighbor or your worker or your friend or your spouse or a, or a sibling, a relative, and understand that I'm responsible only for the communication of truth as best as I can. But I must leave the production of the fruit up to the Lord, trusting that He will produce the increase from this, and that also it will always produce a response. God will always use it for some purpose. That gives me confidence. The Apostle Paul got mixed response from his message in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13. Having chronicled the message that Paul delivered for in Acts chapter 13 to the Jews who were in the synagogue at the Pisidian, in Pisidian Antioch, Luke now spends the rest of the chapter telling us about the varied responses to that message. In verses 42, you should be in Acts chapter 13, in verse 42 and 43, there was an immediate response. You remember some people responded with curiosity. Come back and say these things to us again. They wanted to hear more from Paul and Barnabas. Some people responded with belief. They followed Paul and Barnabas, and they encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. And now Luke is going to chronicle for us the responses of those who opposed the gospel and those who embraced the gospel. And those two really are set in contrast to each other. Luke first tells us about those who opposed the gospel in verses 44 through 47, which we'll look at this morning. And then Luke tells us about those who embraced the gospel in verses 48 through 52. So we're going to look this morning at those who opposed the gospel in verses 44 through 47. Read them with me. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. 
Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now what I want you to notice this morning in those verses is, first of all, the Jewish response of opposition to the gospel. The Jews respond with opposition to the gospel, unbelief. And then I want you to notice in the last half of those verses, Paul's response to the opposition. How the Apostle Paul deals with those who have responded negatively to his message. Verse 44 says that on the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city was assembled together. Now that's a hyperbole. The city in Antioch was a large city. This is Luke's way of saying that there was standing room only crowd. He's using exaggeration. It was as if the whole city showed up at the Sabbath, the next, or at the synagogue the next Sabbath. Everybody was there. There were people up on the stage, people standing along the walls, people outside of the windows, outside of the door. Anywhere that you could stand or sit and hear Paul preach, people were there. This was a huge crowd. People flocked to hear it. Now why did they flock to the synagogue that Sabbath to hear the message of Paul? Now, a lot of things might have contributed to it. He's a visiting preacher. He's better than the guys who had been there the previous Sunday. He's the new guy in town. Word is kind of spread. Hey, you got to hear this guy. He's the new guy at the synagogue. He was there last Sabbath, gave a great message. Come and hear it again. And so everybody who was there the previous Sabbath brings a friend or a relative or somebody to hear him because he's the new guy in town. Maybe some people showed up just to hear what all the hullabaloo was about. What's all the stir and the commotion over this new guy? Maybe some people showed up because it was Saul of Tarsus. Now here's a man who had made for himself a reputation persecuting Christians. Now he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. If you're in Pisidian Antioch and you caught wind that Saul of Tarsus was preaching in the synagogue that Sabbath, you'd be there. I want to hear this for myself. Whether you're a devout Jew or a nominal Jew or a God-fearing Gentile, he would be a spectacle to watch. But some people were there because they heard in Paul a note of truth. And they begged him, come back the next Sabbath and say these things to us again. And so he showed up the next Sabbath and they were there. And look what Luke tells us. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. The Jews, when they saw the crowds show up, they were jealous. Now, you can imagine what it's like, what you feel like when a crowd shows up. Uh, even people who are come as Christians to a Christian worship service, when you show up and you find that some visitor sitting in your pew where you always sit, you can behave pretty unchristianly, can't you? Can you imagine showing up at the synagogue and here's an unclean Gentile sitting in your pew? The nerve of that Gentile to come in here. And not only that, but here you are, a God-fearing Jew, and this place is packed full of Jews who have never been there, Gentiles who have never been there, unclean people standing along the walls. And as a Gentile, you've been taught never to, or as a Jew, you've been taught never to walk into a Gentile home, never to touch anything that a Gentile has touched, never to go anywhere where the Gentiles are, to stay as far away from them as you can. And you walk into your place of worship, and here it's filled with all of these unclean Gentiles and nominal Jews, and they're sitting in your pews. Oh, indignation. But when the Jews, which is Luke's term to refer to those who were the leaders in the synagogue, when they saw this, they were filled with jealousy. They didn't like this. You see, there was something about Paul that they resented. You know what it was? They viewed him as a sheep stealer. They viewed him as a sheep stealer. And here in the synagogue, they had some God-fearing Gentiles whom 
the leadership of the synagogue was hoping that they would in, end up embracing the customs of the law of Moses and begin to keep the Sabbath and all of the laws that went along with that and the ceremonies and the rituals and the sacrifice and the feasts and that they would get rid of their mixed clothing and start wearing either polyester or cotton, but not both at the same time, and stop eating things that defiled the law of Moses and all the dietary laws, that they would give up that and that they would eventually go the whole way and become full-blown proselytes and get circumcised. And in comes the Apostle Paul and says, Look, I can offer you in Christ forgiveness of your sins and freedom from everything that you could not be freed from under the law of Moses. Believe in Him who died for you and rose again. And you don't have to keep the law. You're freed from the law. And you're justified of all of your sin apart from the works of the law. You mean I don't have to change my diet? No. I can receive the blessings of the Messiah and the fruit of forgiveness and freedom in my life from sin and still eat lobster, pork chops, ham, bacon. That's right. I don't have to give up my polyester cotton blend. Nope. Don't have to keep the feasts. Nope. Freedom from the law. Forgiveness of your sin. And I don't have to be circumcised. That's right. The blessings of the Messiah without circumcision and without the law. And the Gentiles believed. And the Jewish leaders in the synagogue said, this guy offers to them a cheap message. doesn't require anything of them. They just have to believe in some Messiah. And they get forgiveness and freedom. And the people believe the message and they would leave the synagogue if the, if the synagogue leaders wouldn't believe. Paul was a sheep stealer. And it infuriated a Jew that a Gentile could be offered blessings of forgiveness and freedom from their Messiah apart from the law of Moses. They had the Jonah complex. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that those Ninevites might repent. And if those dirty, unclean, Gentile Ninevites repented, they would receive the blessings of the grace and the forgiveness of God. And so Jonah went 180 degrees the opposite direction. And when he finally preached to them, and they did repent, and God showed them mercy, was Jonah gleeful? No, he was indignant. That was what he didn't want to see, is a Gentile receive mercy. You remember the apostles were not all that uh, thrilled with the idea that the gospel could come to the Gentiles? It took a vision, the voice of God, and an angel to get Cornelius and Peter together in the same room. You remember that? And then when the, the apostles back in Jerusalem heard that Peter had gone into Cornelius' house and preached the gospel to them, what did they do? Peter showed back up in Jerusalem and they called him on the carpet and went postal. You went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. And then Peter had to go through the whole story and tell them what had happened. And at the end, they still weren't pleased with the idea. And they said, well then, God has granted also to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Acts 11.18 You see, the Jews had this nationalistic pride. They had been chosen by God and rather than being humbled by that, they were prideful of it. They had been blessed by God and rather than turning around and sharing that with the other nations, they kept it to themselves. They had been the recipients and the channels of divine revelation. And rather than taking the divine revelation of the apostles, or the prophets in the Old Testament law and sharing it with the nations as a means of salvation, they kept it to themselves. They didn't share their God with the other nations. And they became prideful. So here they show up in the synagogue. And here's Paul saying, you can have forgiveness and freedom apart from the law. And they're jealous. They're jealous. You know what they're jealous about? 
It's the crowd. These guys have been speaking in the synagogue every Sunday and they can't gather a crowd like this. Now, where's the crowd last Sabbath when we were supposed to speak? And where will the crowd be next Sabbath when we're supposed to speak? Here is this itinerant stump preacher who gathers a crowd that we can only hope to muster in our synagogue and they seethe inside because they wish that the crowd was theirs and they're jealous. And they see Paul something, they, they see Paul doing something they can only hope to do and that's to gather a crowd to listen to the word and they become jealous. They don't want him there. You see, they're not interested in the flock. They're interested in a following. What they really want is the big crowd for themselves. It's not truth that they love. It's the acclaim of people. And friends, you and I fall into the same mistake and the same trap when we begin to compare ourselves with other people and become jealous of what somebody else's ministry, somebody else's church, somebody else's uh, efforts are bringing them. When I show up at the camp to preach to these 35 or 40 kids and I hear that there were 20 that trusted Christ the week before, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have half of them come forward. And I preached to 35 or 40 kids that week. Nobody gets saved. Or one person gets saved. You fall into the trap of comparing fruit. And then getting jealous. And say, well, if I wish that I had that guy's fruit, I wish I had that guy's ministry, I wish I was in that church or could do that. Forget it. Forget it. They were jealous because they looked at what Paul did and they said, I want that. That's the, that is the motive behind their opposition. It's jealousy. That's the motive behind their opposition. Second, I want you to notice the method of their opposition. Luke says that when they began to get jealous, they started contradicting the things which were spoken by Paul and Barnabas. What was it that Paul and Barnabas were speaking? It was the Word of God. Now, Luke has just given to us a whole message that Paul delivered. You and I might rightly expect that whatever it was that he did on the second Sabbath was very similar, if not identical, to what he had done on the first Sabbath. He came in and he just very simply presented Christ. Christ as the culmination of all of history, the fulfillment of all of prophecy, and the liberator of all of humanity. He just preached Christ and Him crucified. And they saw the crowds, and they saw these Gentiles who were inclined to believe Him, and they said to themselves, this is our chance to win over the crowd. So they started contradicting Paul. When Paul would argue that Christ needed to be crucified and show so from the Old Testament, they would contradict him. That's not how we interpret that. That's not what that means. That's not what that is in its context. You can't say that. That's not happened. That's not what's true. The other prophet says this. They did their best to turn the crowd away from listening to Paul to listening to them by contradicting him. You remember the last person that did that in the life of the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 13, Elemas. Remember the magician? Tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith, didn't he? What did Paul do? Man, he unloaded on him with a tongue lashing that would make our hair curl, and then he struck him with blindness. I don't think these guys realize who they're dealing with here, the Apostle Paul. He doesn't strike them with blindness this time, but for all intents and purposes, they're walking on thin ice. And they begin not only to contradict what he says, but to blaspheme. In other words, it goes from a discussion of issues They start speaking evil of Christ, and they start speaking evil of God. And thus they really secure their own damnation. They begin to blaspheme. What did they say? Luke doesn't tell us what they said. You can well imagine what they could use to blaspheme Christ with. The people in Jerusalem came up with all kinds of things to blaspheme Him with. They said He was an illegitimate child. We know who our Father is. Oh, ouch, that hurts. 
implied that his mom was a bit um, indiscreet. Called him a drunkard, wine-bibber, a glutton, friend of sinners, a blasphemer, demon-possessed, said he does his signs and wonders by the power of Beelzebub. Man, they blasphemed him. This discussion in the synagogue goes from Paul sharing Christ to a rather heated argument in which blaspheme comes into it. And they begin to speak evil of Christ and speak evil of God. That is the method of their opposition. Now look at Paul's response to the opposition that comes up. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Look, when the truth is on the line, that's no time for timidity. When the gospel's in the crosshairs, that's no time to to cower back. And if you know anything about Paul, then you know he was not the type of person to ever back down for any reason whatsoever. And so when they began to blaspheme, Paul and Barnabas just kicked it up a notch. And they began to speak out boldly. And so what they say to these Jews who are opposing them, it's very graceful, but friends, it is very bold, it is very straightforward. And I want you to notice the three things that Paul shows with them, shares with them. First of all, he shows them that their opposition to the gospel was their decision. Look at verse 45 or 46. Paul and Barnabas broke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoke to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul's pattern was this. Go into the city, go into the synagogue, preach Christ. And all through the book of Acts, you see the same thing happen with the Apostle Paul. He goes into the synagogue, he preaches Christ. And then what happens is the Jewish leadership of the synagogue basically corporately as a group rejects it. There are some Jews who believe it. Sometimes even synagogue leaders who believe it and trust Christ. But by and large, the Jews repudiate it. They rejected the message. They want anything to do with it. But the Gentiles would turn to Christ in massive numbers and they would become the core of the churches that Paul would plant in these different cities. Paul followed that pattern to the Jew first and then to the Greek. No explanation in the New Testament why the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. We assume that it was because the Jews were the covenant people of God. They had received the oracles of God. They were God's people. Still, God had not cast them off. And so the gospel was presented to them and given them the opportunity to believe. You reject it. That's your choice, Paul says, so we go to the Gentiles. But what I want you to notice is the terminology that Paul uses. Look at this. You repudiate it, and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. You reject Christ? That's fine, Paul says. You have to understand that's your decision. And you're going to be held responsible for the decision that you make. There's going to be no excuse before the Lord on Judgment Day. I've presented the message to you, Paul said. You've been given a choice. And they turned away from it. So Paul says, you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. It's your choice. And you've chosen damnation. Now, there are two concepts that are presented between verses 42 and 52. And they are set side by side right next to each other. I want you to notice them. The first is in verse 46 where Paul says that you repudiate the gospel message and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Then you get down to verse 48, and at the end it reads, that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now how do you put those two sentences in the same room together? You reject Christ? Your choice. You choose damnation. 
You're going to live for eternity with the consequences of that choice. And the judgment that falls upon you for rejecting it comes because you've chosen damnation. You've chosen eternal punishment. It's your choice. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. But as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now how do you get those two sentences in the same room together? They don't seem to go well together, do they? You mean some are appointed to eternal life and they believe? That's what the text says. We'll deal with it next week. But if you reject your choice, you've chosen damnation. You judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Now listen, either Luke is hopelessly confused, theologically illiterate, and such a stooge that he cannot see himself contradict himself between two paragraphs, or, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, Luke purposefully put those two statements together, one characterizing those who do not believe, one characterizing those who do believe. He sees the apparent contradiction, but he does not attempt to reconcile them, and he does not minimize one at the expense of the other. He just simply says, those who reject do so by their own choice and they're responsible. Those who believed were appointed to eternal life. And you get off either side of that and you start down a slope into error. you got to hold both of those because both of them are true. We'll flesh that out more next week. But what I want you to notice this week is that to reject the gospel is not because you weren't appointed. It is because you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. It's not because God has predestined you to hell. It is because you saw the gospel, you repudiated the gospel, and wanted nothing to do with life, and so you judged yourself unworthy of that eternal life and chose damnation. And you bear the responsibility for it. That's that side of the coin. Next week we'll get to the other side of the coin and flesh out verse 48 through 52. So Paul presents to them this. Your opposition to the gospel is your decision. Second of all, your opposition to the gospel results in your damnation. You judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. To choose to reject Christ is to choose damnation. And here's the startling fact. Every man, every woman, apart from the grace of God, when given the choice between damnation and salvation, between unrighteousness and righteousness, between unholiness and, and holiness, between life and death, will always choose death, damnation, sin, and unrighteousness. Every time. That's why verse 48 is necessary. Because we will always choose damnation and bear the responsibility for our own damnation. Paul says, you have repudiated eternal life you have chosen your course, and you have rejected life eternal. Jesus said to the Jews of his day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And they are those which testify of me. But you are, listen, unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Given the choice, they said, no, we're unwilling. We'll choose damnation. Thank you very much. It's their decision. It results in their damnation. And the third thing that Paul very bluntly points out is that their opposition to the gospel was due to their disobedience. Look at verse 47. 
Paul says, we're turning to the Gentiles because the Lord has commanded us to. And then he quotes a passage from the Old Testament. And this passage has been called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. It was the go into all the world passage of the Old Testament and share the message of salvation and God with everybody. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Isaiah 49, verse 6 reads, It is a too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now look at verse 47. Paul says, quotes Isaiah, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now to understand why Paul quotes that, you've got to understand what Isaiah was talking about. In the passage of Isaiah 49, the, the prophet Isaiah was comparing and contrasting the nation of Israel as the servant of God and their failure to be his righteous servant and how they had done not done what he asked them to do, not done what he expected them to do, not kept his law. They were disobedient, a rebellious and stiff-necked people. That's the nation of Israel as the servant of Yahweh. But then Isaiah says of the Lord, I will raise up a branch, my righteous one, my servant, capital S, it's the Lord Jesus, who will do all of my will and fulfill all of my desire. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. And so Isaiah contrasts the disobedient servant of the nation of Israel with the obedient servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, all the way through the end of the book of Isaiah. Back and forth it goes. Their disobedience, His obedience. Their unrighteousness, His righteousness. And in the context of all of that, the Lord says to His disobedient servant, I set you as a light to the Gentiles to take salvation to the ends of the earth and to make my name known to all peoples. Did the nation of Israel do that? Didn't do that, did they? Kept it to themselves. Didn't like the idea of preaching to Nineveh. They were typical Jonah's. And so they failed to do what the Lord had commissioned them to do, which was to take His revelation and make it a light to all the peoples. And so the Lord says, I'll raise up my servant, the Lord Jesus, who will be a light to all the nations. He will bring salvation to the Gentiles. And so Paul's argument is simple. The leaders of the synagogue, you've been disobedient, just like the nation itself has been. But as a messenger of God, as a servant of the Messiah, I will be like the obedient servant, and I will take the message of salvation to the Gentiles. This must have plagued the Jews in the synagogue that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles and offering them salvation. For Paul says, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. I'll take it to a people who will believe it and who will respond to it. And I will be like the righteous servant, the Lord Jesus, in making his salvation known to the ends of the earth. Your opposition to the gospel is your decision. It results in your damnation and is due to your disobedience to the word. And Paul effectively tells them, They have no justification from the Old Testament to not take the message of salvation, the revelation of God to all peoples. And he says, you didn't do it because you as a leadership were disobedient. But we'll do it because the Lord has commanded us to. As servants of Christ, we have to do what Christ has done, and that is to make salvation available to the Gentiles. And so he wraps it up with that. See, friends, they had... They had disobeyed, and thus they had sacrificed all of the blessings that come with obedience. Friends, you and I have a responsibility to take the message of Christ to every man, every woman, every child, anybody that will listen, to share His Word, not only in word, but also in action and deed, and to minister, and to be lights amongst the heathens. That will bring opposition. 
that will bring people who will not believe. That will bring people who will blaspheme, people who will contradict you, and people who will even hate you. But that's what we're to do. And so we must take the Word, and by the grace of God, we must sow the Word, we must water with the Word, and then trust God to give the increase. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it has its way in our hearts and in our lives. And we ask, God, that You would give to us the grace, the power, and the boldness to speak boldly for Christ and to not be worrying about producing fruit, to not be worrying about the results, but to simply be faithful to do what You've called us to do and trust You for the increase and trust that You will always use Your Word as You see fit. Thank You for this example and the warning that it is to us of the results and the damnation of disobedience. We ask that you would bless us as we leave here this morning and make us messengers of your gospel and lights to shine in a dark world to the uttermost parts of the earth. A message of salvation, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.